Hi, this is Dr. Jonathan Douglas. I'm a psychologist. I'm a former president of the Ontario Psychological Association, uh, a, a feature which is growing more and more distant in the rearview mirror. I should probably stop mentioning it at some point. And I'm also the, uh, the host of the Ontario Psychological Association's podcast called On Psych, which you are currently listening to, so you probably already know that. I am here today with Dr. Professor Lord Rewat Dionandan. Did I get all of those right? <laughs> you missed a couple, but yeah, but so far so good. Uh, yeah, that's not very surprising, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Ray has been uh, collecting uh, various accurate and spurious uh, qualifications over the years. Um, and uh, try, I want to give you a little bit of, of history of, of how I know Ray. Um, which is uh, essentially not at all, uh, because this is the first time we've ever actually spoken. And yet we have followed each other, and I think it's fair to say relentlessly teased each other for some years now, uh, uh, I guess th throughout the pandemic. Uh, we somehow stumbled This sounds like it. a love story now. <laughs> it is. It really it is a love story, damn it. It is absolutely a love story. And and yes, yes, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, it's a fantastic romance, I think, which has which has bloomed between us. I would like to say, and you might also recognize uh, uh, Ray's uh, name uh, as he is one of the foremost communicators um, who is often tapped by numerous news uh, resources. I believe it may have been passed by an act of. Uh, provincial parliament that you're not allowed to run a story about the pandemic without quoting Dr. Ray Dionandan, who is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. And I saw from Ray a tweet uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, how he's going to give a talk on how to communicate uh, scientific findings. And I thought to myself, well, I'm way too cheap to sign up for that. I'm going to get this guy onto my podcast and I want to get the, the lowdown for free. So <laughs> that's at least part of what I want to talk about today is because I'm looking at I, and I know like Ray, you know, um, you know, I mentioned your, your your Twitter account, which you've got private. Yeah. Right. You've got it set to private. And I'm assuming that the reason for that is Unrelenting Trolls. Would that be a fair guess? Good name for a band, by the way, Unrelenting Trolls. <laughs> but yes. You would, <laughs> the dad jokes. My kids are so sick of hearing me use that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Unrelenting Trolls. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my original philosophy when I first started engaged on Twitter with the masses, as it were, was, all perspectives are valid, and I still believe that. All questions are, are good questions, and I still believe that. And most people come to you in good faith. And I'm not sure I entirely believe that anymore. And and so I would even the um, the offensive, um, contrary comments that came my way, I would take at face value and attempt to engage with them under the assumption that my good nature would prevail and win them over, right. which was not true. <laughs> I quickly learned that even if 20% of those engagements resulted in stress, as the engagements increased in number, that 20% of a large number became an unwieldy amount of stress in my life. So yes. with regret, I closed the Twitter, Twitter account to private. But still, uh, I gained an additional like 8,000 followers the next day. Uh, as, uh, so making it private 
didn't really curtail the ability to engage with the public. It did create something of an echo chamber, but I had to yeah. prioritize my own mental health at some point. So I did. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a, a, a and honestly, I, my my Twitter account is public, as you know, and I don't think it's any less of an echo tw- uh, chamber because you know the people who I engage with, um, you know, they they typically you know share a certain common understanding of of what's going on, and I'm I've had to grow to be fairly quick with the uh, with the block button. Right. You know, so if you're coming at me with, you know, first name followed by eight digits and, you know, you've got 11 followers and, and you start to engage with me in a way which is, you know, irritating. <laughs> I'm just not going to put up with it anymore. It's like this is so why why am I trying to teach this person something who has no desire to learn? Many scientists right? have earned a black belt of a Twitter block and it's yes. been inspiring to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, here we are, you know, in an, in an age where scientific literacy is literally a matter of life and death, mm-hmm. where, you know, simple things like understanding the concept of probabilities, which I, but, and I want to admit here, okay, I it was the one of the worst students imaginable when it came to math and statistics, right? I was I'm still just so horrible at it, but at least I was able to comprehend that the world is not fully, you know, black and white, right? That there are shades of gray, you know, that can be represented by probabilities, right? And, you know, that, you know, that this is like, something which I think some people just have such a hard time grasping based on what I see on Twitter. <laughs> you know, it's an um, interesting thing you say, because I want to take a step back. And what I struggle with is certainty. Mm-hmm. I think certainty is uh, the source or the kernel rather of a lot of discontents in society and probably the first step and the long path of delusion. Yeah. But that yeah. also applies to people like me and possibly you who are supposed to be certain about our perspective as well. Am I certain that the world is based on uncertainty and probability? I'm not certain. <laughs> I'm not. It's just that this is the foundation of Western science. And right. in order for us to take the next step in saying, well, because of the random distribution of factors and things in the universe, um, then these probabilistic tools are in effect. Therefore, the distribution of these factors is blah, 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 blah. But it begins with the assumption that the world is probabilistically distributed. And I can't prove that's the case. Right. That's a a philosophical perspective, though. And that's not what the world needs right now. Um, What (laughs) what the world needs is... Boy, have they come to the wrong podcast. (laughs) 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 But to answer your question directly is we have failed in a large extent to communicate and educate the world on science as it is understood in the post-Enlightenment era. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that all aspects of science in the post-Enlightenment era are sacrosanct in God's given truth. And I said God's given truth intentionally. (laughs) (laughs) The irony is all over To be ironic. Because, you know, science, of course, is always subject to dramatic 
uh, uh, shifting paradigm changes. Mm-hmm. And we may be due for one soon as well. So we have to remain some, retain some humility. However, the extent to which we know anything about diseases and pandemics and public health, et cetera, um, uh, suggests that this set of facts are true. And therefore, yes. it's important for us to wrestle with the truth of these facts in the context of the untruths of the world. And uh, I've made this way too nerdy for you already. <laughs> and I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You know, I, I, I really thought, you know, we would not be nerdy. You know, like. <laughs> so, so what I'm trying to say is when we're starting the process of science communication, regardless who the audience is, there must be an internal plunge into the assumptions we make about our own paradigms of belief. Right. Right. I'm going to question those is- paradigms. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a, a huge challenge, though, because, you know, we do run up against the reality, right? That when, if you study epistemology, the study of how do we know what we know, right? Then you come up against precisely that, right? You know, it's it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and it turns out, oop, doesn't just apply to, uh, you know, to uh, subatomic physics. It's actually you know, true across the board, right? Someone comes up with, uh, you know, Schrodinger's cat, right, as a thought experiment to prove how ludicrous something is. And, you know, the, the, the concept is still with us because it's not ludicrous at all. Right? And <laughs> you know, next thing you know, you've got the Marvel multiverse. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? You know, and, you know, so we really are, and like you say, like this concept of, of humility, right? Yeah. You know, that we have to come at it, you know, how do we know what we know? And I think some of the the massive failures that have occurred in communication, uh, you know, from, you know, government and, and scientists and this kind of a thing, you know, over the course of the pandemic have been when they've come out with very, very strong, certain yeah. statements, right? The vaccine is going to stop the infections and put an end to the pandemic, yeah. right? And then that turns out not to be exactly accurate. And then we lose, you know, a certain percentage of the population. Now that we've got the vaccines, the CDC says, and this was one of my favorites, right? Now that we've got the, the vaccines, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask indoors. Yeah. Right. Which put an end to, you know, the viability of all mask mandates, you know, throughout, you know, the Western world. And it's, it, it, it's, it's a remarkable, a remarkable thing that, you know, if we're, we're looking to experts for certainty, right? We want solid answers. We, we want our experts to guide us. But when they do, of course, <laughs> it infuriates, you know, some people, right? And then others follow them slavishly. And then they just, you know, it, it's, it's like this this mix of... You know, what we're missing here isn't, isn't education in science per se. It's education in the mm-hmm. philosophy of science. Right. Even those people who are scientists or, or science communicators often don't have sufficient education or depth in, in the philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. I think all science education should begin with the mantra, uh, the following is true until further notice. Right. 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 Because the philosophy of science really suggests that there is an algorithm, a set of steps that we pursue to interrogate uh, an unknown. And yeah. even that, that algorithm sits within a philosophical paradigm. 
And that algorithm has inputs of information and data. And the quality of the output is entirely dependent on the quality of the inputs. And as the inputs change, the output's going to change. If the public understood that more rigorously, I think there'd be less pushback against what we as supposed science communicators offer. So the crisis before society is multifold. Number one, there's a crisis of trust, uh, trust in decision makers and scientists and leaders in the supposed elite of which I suppose you and I are supposed to be members. Uh, <laughs> yeah, can we, can we go laugh about that? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. 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 I, know, I know that, you know, if, if this is what the elite is, it's like, oh my God, I've been so wrong about so many things for so long. You know? yeah. So that's the first crisis, crisis of trust. The second crisis is a crisis of of science literacy, as you mentioned, and we have policy levers to to approach that. And I hope we can explore some of that, if not in this podcast, and as colleagues in the future. But the last one, of course, is uh, a crisis in philosophical understanding of epistemology, yeah. right? Of where information yeah. comes from. That doesn't mean to be hypercritical of all things all the time. Simply means to understand where your information originates, so you can balance the quality of information you are getting, so that a YouTube clip is not weighted more heavily than a peer-reviewed paper simply because it is more easily understood. And I think one of the, uh, you know, picking up on that point, one of the confusing things is that one of the good things, uh, one of the things that science does well is critique itself. And so, you know, science is constantly coming up with more science to say, here's the problem with science, (laughs) right? And of course, then people grab onto that and say, see, see, you know, you know, it turns out that there are social processes. Science in- is a self-hating goth teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, we need no explanation further. <laughs> that is all we need to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Science is a self-hating goth teenager. I, I'm going to be tweeting that out in a few minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll tell There's you that right now. You're wearing black today, my friend. So. <laughs> Just to heighten your own self-loathing, of course. Yeah, yeah. So tell me what you mean by that. Well, I think you understand what I mean by that. Is is the endless amounts of self-critique at the same time yeah. uh, self um, uh, celebration, and the fact that we're <laughs> cooler than everybody else. You just don't understand. <laughs> and, yes. and the gatekeeping. Right, so you, you yeah. can't get into this cool club, even though it's a self-hating club that's always trying to self-develop. <laughs> <laughs> it all has to be examined and addressed. Yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, it, but you know, from the outside, people look at that self-loathing, you know, group, and you know, think, what do they heck do these people have to offer? Offer, right? You know, and I, I think that's that's so true. Right. And it's like, so, so how do we overcome that? How do it, we're in this emergency, this global emergency, which is like, you know, been disastrously communicated about, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's a good question. How do we solve that? Well, I mean, at what level, though? Um, solve it at a societal level, at a policy level, at a governmental level. I have, you know, been advising some supposedly important people on some of these questions. And some of the solutions that have come to the fore is the creation of a federal agency uh, that uh, vets public health and public science information, which to me kind of 
isn't the solution that's needed because it just doubles down on the distrust. Yeah. You know, I think what we need are, are well-trusted public figures mm-hmm. that can be relied upon to champion certain things. Now, Tom Hanks. That's the first name that came to mind. <laughs> Tom, we need you. Come on. Yes. I remember, you yeah. know, my my scientific uh, communication hero was Carl Sagan, who actually mm-hmm. was the reason I became a scientist. I remember watching Cosmos. The reason. The reason. The reason. <laughs> the, the human the in 1979, watching Cosmos on TV when I was a little kid, like this yeah. – like I, I thought I knew what science was. I thought science was test tubes and facts, but no, mm-hmm. science was history and philosophy and music and understanding and humanism and art. And art. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and he yeah. was so well understood and well respected mm-hmm. by everyone outside of academia at the time, ironically. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. That when he said something, people noticed. And for a while, Neil deGrasse Tyson was the same. David Suzuki. Suzuki. Right. Now there are going to be some yeah. some political ideologies that push back when these people yep. start uh, embracing some of the more problematic or divisive sentiments like climate change. That's mm-hmm. you know that's unavoidable. <laughs> it, it, it kind of is, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we got science and we've got politics, right. and you know, yeah, I, 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 yeah, and you know, you're in a field which is. You know, uh, I've heard it said. I mean, it's just—it's it, inherently political. Right? You know, and my st- students don't get—they didn't get it before. They probably get it now. And mm-hmm. Neil deGrasse Tyson said for the longest time that professional scientists like us, it is our responsibility to engage with the public and go to the pub and say, "Hey, I'm a—I'm a such and such ist. Ask me any questions you want." And I respected that. But what people mm-hmm. need to understand is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I admire deeply, by the way. Um, is an astrophysicist. No one's yes. identity is tied to the number of dimensions in the interior of a black hole. <laughs> so, yeah. so when he goes to a pub, people ask him, so what happens when I step through the event horizon? He can have a, a reasoned conversation about that and not expect his car to be keyed while this is yes. happening. Yes, yes. When, yes. when you're in public health or, or medicine or any one of these divisive sciences, and it's sad for me to say they're divisive, psychology among them, <laughs> Really? Uh, well, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, anything you talk about is going to intrude upon someone's identity to some extent. Yeah, yeah. And that creates yeah. enemies. And on top yes. of that, we have now foreign disinformation agents and well-funded campaigns to exacerbate the existing cracks in society. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. And that really is that has been the most surprising to me aspect of the communications crisis, but also ironically, the one that's most easily addressed. How so? By policymakers. Well, as we saw during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when Twitter blocked <laughs> um, uh, profiles coming out of Russia to a large extent. And right, Belarus, right. Well, then the abuse that public health officials received dropped by several orders of magnitude. Interesting. So if we took the effort to identify yeah, you know, they're the troll farms. You can control them to a very large extent. So, yeah, uh, yeah. because these are organized disinformation campaigns, an organized intelligence campaign by our side of the national div- international divide can help assuage that. Whereas uh, uh, addressing the innate divisions in society that have been capitalized upon by these disinformation agents is harder. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, the brilliance of that disinformation campaign is 
they saw our Achilles heel and our Achilles heel is ourselves. And, and it's our, our, our freedoms, the basically freedoms. our freedom of speech. Right. You know, and you know, that they, they don't, you know, have a monolithic, we don't have a monolithic uh, political sphere and, you know, we're allowed to engage in, in debate. Right. And I actually discovered just, um, you know, I'm sure others knew about this long before I did, but I just, you know, like a month ago or so, I discovered the existence of this book published in Russia in uh, the late 90s. Um, I can't remember the title, but it had geopolitics in the title. Um, and it basically, it re- reads, I've read it, obviously, but, you know, the the, the summary, it reads like a to-do list for Putin, right? <laughs> It was it was incredible for you know dealing with the West exploit divisions right you know widen any of you know the existing cracks in society uh, it was next Ukraine was in there um, this was it was published before the EU but it had separate um, uh, separate uh, Britain from uh, from Europe wow. uh, economically. Uh, I, I know it's like, it's like check, 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 right. You know, right down the line. And it, you know, it was, you know, it, 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 this book was published before the internet <laughs> basically. Right. Well, that is you really know. interesting, but I do want to caution us uh, against pinning all of the world's ills on Vladimir Putin. So really? I mean, like let's, let's, let's <laughs> if he is removed from the, if he's defeated in Ukraine, removed from power, all that great stuff. Um, the cracks, that he exploited are still there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. We know it. You know, yeah. And it's, it's fun to point to, you know, the great evil and, you know, uh, the great orange and say, (laughs) you know, these are are the sources of all of the problems, but they're not, they're not, they are symptoms, right. Of, of they're absolutely symptoms of something that have been, you know, running for such a long time. You know, I forgot who who said it, who, who, where I read this, but before this pandemic, I read somewhere that, um, pandemics prize apart existing cracks in society yes and yeah you know and we should have been ready for this we should yeah. be ready for this and we weren't um the question is what do we do next that's a great right. question i'm going to ask that question right oh, what do we do next i was hoping to ask you <laughs> <laughs> okay what we have to do next is reinvest in the next generation this is not a problem that can be solved in weeks or months even years, probably decades. Mm-hmm. We begin mm-hmm. now, though, by doing the simple things around preventing the next pandemic, around you know investing in better surveillance systems, strengthening our vaccine manufacturing platforms, all that great stuff. But we have to strengthen and make more resilient the population to accept the messaging. There is, yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk about many different things at once here, but we'll get back to that. I'm, I'm, I'm almost hearing certain crowd their head exploding. Strengthen the population to accept the messaging? <laughs> oh, oh, no, 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 no. Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That was Orwellian. No, 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 no. Thank you. Thank you for corrupting me. Are those the words that I use? I got to be more careful. They oh, are. my goodness. The autocrat has exposed oh. himself. Well, like. someone on Twitter called me a tyrant. I guess they're right. So, <laughs> no. What I mean is strengthen the population with the tools to navigate messaging more responsibly. Yes. To be able to Critical filter thinking. nonsense from from not nonsense or lesser nonsense. Because yes. everything's got some degree of nonsense built into it. 
Uh, yeah, I think we all we're, we're all capable of confirmation bias and and, and every other bias you can, yeah. you can name. Right. I'm, you know, the, the, the challenge, <laughs> we're all so much better right. at calling out other people's. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, <laughs> the flip side of that, too, is not just empowering people with the tools to navigate messaging. It's also making a more civil society so mm-hmm. that when you and I disagree, I'm not personally offended and I do not I do not delve into the depths of dissonance to yes. become more hardened in my position. That's the hard right. thing. So when I, really it is, thing. so when I, when I supposedly train, I don't really train anybody, but supposedly I, I train new communicators. And by the way, I, I don't actively train new communicators, but my graduate students, I do try to instill in them uh, some sort of skill in engaging with the public is, right. is alerting them to these pitfalls. And number one pitfall is of course, do not be personally and so personally invested in your message that you will achieve some degree of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I want to really harden your position. Our positions must be flexible and must respect the other person on the other side of, of the microphone or, or the messaging. Mm-hmm. Number two um, is I think another generation of communicators of science graduates have to invest in the philosophical training to make themselves resilient against abuse. Mm-hmm. And what's worked well for me is stoicism, but it doesn't work for everybody. So wh- whatever... Right field of, of philosophy works for you, we should try to inculcate that, or at least to expose young people to the tools so that they- Resiliency. Yeah, right? You need a, resilience. You need a thick skin, basically. Thick skin, or not to internalize these issues yeah. more so that yeah. they're intended. Yeah. Then after that, I think we have to deal with the public by, again, uh, uh, informing them and educating them on what science is and isn't. Science doesn't have all the answers. To, to my mind, science answers the questions of what and how, but not necessarily why. Science doesn't tell you who to be, what your mm-hmm. values are. It's mechanistic. Yeah. We know, for example, hey, if you wear a mask, the transmission decreases. That's not political. And here's, here's yeah. why. You know? yeah. It, it doesn't offend yeah. your identity, your tribe. Uh, One would not think, and yet, and yet, and yet. <laughs> I cannot help but notice an awful lot of people yeah. being offended by that very So message. I think what people are missing, and I include myself in this, is uh, the introspection needed to establish what exactly are the factors that define my identity. It's not mm-hmm. behaviors. Mm-hmm. And what, what establishes the, the shared characteristics between me and my tribe? Again, it's not that I wear a mask and you don't wear a mask. It's not that I like vaccines, you don't like vaccines. It's more like I have these values. Now, I respect those people who I'm pro-vaccine mandate, for example, in, in some professions and, I could, uh, and other people aren't. I respect their position because that's mm-hmm. a philosophical divide. We don't disagree mm-hmm. that vaccines work. We simply disagree that the threshold at which we impose them is this versus that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that idea of sort of separating, you know, fact from value, right? And it seems like these things sort of flow from each other, but in fact, they do not, right? right. We, We can say, look, masks work, but I'm philosophically opposed to mandates, Yeah. right? You know, and, and that can be a, a starting point, yeah. right? If we could actually all share, you know, a, 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 a shared concept of what is in fact a fact. <laughs> right? But even that becomes challenging, right? You can always find now some study, some expert who's going to support your pre-existing position, right? 
And it, it's amazing, amazing how many you can find. You want to find an epidemiologist who's anti-epidemiology? No problem. You want to find an anti-psychology <laughs> psychologist? No problem. Right. They, they, they exist in every single field and then they become, you know, elevated. Right. It's hard right. though to find a psychologist with really good hair. That's true. I, I, I think, I think, you know, the current, you know, yeah, I've not had a haircut for a year, Ray, right? I've not had a haircut for a year. I got rid of my, my beard recently when they got rid of the mask mandates. I got rid of my beard. I wanted a better seal. Gotcha. <laughs> Good thinking. That's science, my friend. Hashtag that's science. Right, that's science. That's science, right? <laughs> but yes, so the values question, and again, all of this ultimately distills down to values everything does and yes. we the the challenge in a liberal democracy is accepting the multiplicity of individual values within the context of a shared set of values of a nation and this is where mm -hmm. parliament steps in and says we have decided that these are the shared values of canadians and there is something tyrannical about that i'm not going to disagree but i don't see a way yeah. around it like, for example, my, my research focus used to be around reproduction. I've shifted mm -hmm. research focus many times over my career. And it was once uh, decided by the Parliament of Canada that it is a, contrary to the values of Canadians to exchange money for sperm or eggs right. or any kinds of human tissue right. and blood. And, right. and the downside of that, of course, is people who want to sell their stuff aren't allowed to do so. You can argue, but I have bodily autonomy. I own my yeah. blood and my sperm and other stuff. Why can't I sell it? And it's a good mm -hmm. question. And the reason, the answer yeah. is because that is contrary to the values of Canadians. <laughs> so, so there must be some compromise between, again, the, uh, the diversity of individual value and the shared value of a community. And that's a conversation. Yes, and it has to be an ongoing conversation, and it has to be mentored and monitored and and vetted by an individual of power with a light hand. So something like a royal commission, I think, should be constantly engaged to monitor the shifting tone of Canadian values because the values assessed in 1940 are not the values today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm open yeah. to the fact that my values may not be the ones that are accepted five, ten years from now. If I would say, you know, I mean, you know, the way that we do that, right, is through elections. Right. So so our elected leaders, we select our leaders. I mean, let's be honest, we select our leaders based on whose values we don't like. <laughs> right? <laughs> Block them, you know, <laughs> split the vote and then, you know, end up with a parliament no one's happy with. Right. But I mean, it is a, nonetheless in some way, a, a, you know, a, a democratically elected uh, set of leaders. Right. Um, but I, I mean, what you're saying is so true, and yet it's also so challenging because we look at how we're treating politicians today, right? You know, F asterisk CK Trudeau suddenly <laughs> entered the lexicon as a perfectly reasonable bit of political discourse. Well, and that's putting it mildly compared to what's happening in the state. Socrates who said something about uh, those who are best equipped to lead or those who least wish to lead. So, yeah. so a good, uh, I think a good litmus test is if you want the job badly, you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I think people exactly. would probably respect that. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I've got no choice but to be dragged. Poor, poor Tom Hanks and, and George <laughs> Clooney, right? You know, you know, and, and uh, Michelle Obama, right? I mean, these people are just like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've segued into redefining the political landscape of Canada, which is beyond our mandate, I believe. <laughs> I think it's within the scope of this podcast. All right, cool. cool. <laughs> Somehow I anticipated this would happen when you and I started talking. <laughs> but I mean, to drag it back to the you know the mundane topic of science communication, it really is all about values. So science communication is an offshoot of knowledge translation in general. And knowledge translation, knowledge exchange, knowledge mobilization, whatever you want to call it, is an evolving field. And I used to be you know, knee-deep in that field until I couldn't keep up with the changes anymore either. But the, the first uh, KT conference I went to, run by my uh, good friend Peter Levesque, uh, I thought I understood what KT was. It's a build a website to give your organization's uh, accomplishments more more penetration in society. Or, hey, we'll, we'll write a newsletter. Or maybe we will train our scientific staff to be able to talk to a variety of audiences. Oh, that's advanced, right? But the first conference I went to, it quickly devolved into an esoteric discussion of meaning and identity. And I thought, oh, oh yes, this is where it has to go. And this is where it always will go. Because if I don't understand who I am, how dare I, how dare I presume to inculcate upon you some understanding of the nature of reality. It's offensive. So it always begins with self-knowledge and inner knowledge. So all of this begins with philosophy, sometimes even religion to some extent. And I'd like to point out at this point, uh, just like a completely unrelated uh, topic, uh, Ray is also an author. (laughs) (laughs) He's highly creative and artistic, right? And so this is, I think think we can see where this is coming from, right? Because really, it's about that creativity, isn't it? It's, 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 this is where science meets art. To some extent. I mean, you think about what the scientific process is. It's, I observe, hey, an apple fell from the tree. Let us devise a theory. Maybe there's a force pulling the apple down. Let us devise now a set of experiments, you know, and we collect our data. And from that data, we have our results. And then we extrapolate to the grander truth of reality. So every step in that algorithm is mechanistic, except for the first two. The observation, leading to theory, and the results leading to larger theory. That's the art. Mm-hmm. That takes creativity. That takes uh, uh, an individual mind being somehow connected to the universe to see a connection that no one else saw. But the other yeah. stuff, the cranking the machine, that's mechanistic. And frankly, that's what most people think science is. And science is not that. That's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's technician work. Yeah. A computer can do that. An AI can do that. What the proper yeah. scientist does is sees where this fits into all of reality and, yeah. and able to take themselves both out of it and back into it. Which brings us back to, you know, the, the paradigms of thought when it comes to science. Are we positivist or are we something else? And we don't know a positive way of thinking um, supposes that uh, objective truth exists absent from the observer and non-positive thinking suggests that, uh, you know, the observer is baked into the system and I cannot measure anything without affecting its outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll never be able to separate it. Right? Exactly. We'll to- exactly. And it's clear that the non-positives are correct. It's clear that's correct, mm-hmm. but we cannot. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> there we have, it. ladies and gentlemen. We have determined today there is 
no objective reality. Repeat, there is no objective reality. <laughs> but we have to presume that there is some objective truth in order for us to get through day to day. So what we do is we approximate. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. But to, to, again, brings about communication. What does this mean? It means mm-hmm. that I, when communicating something, I must understand that mm-hmm. my message is imbued with my personality. The words yeah. I've chosen are not uh, necessarily objective. They're chosen for a reason. I am at a certain level, I'm protecting myself. At a certain level, I'm promoting myself. That's undeniable. You know. So um, I think it's, we do ourselves a disservice if we pretend otherwise. What we have to do then is do it from multiple angles so we can triangulate a message more wholly. Uh, and also, always, uh, I think, to always inculcate that message with a sense of humility. That I'm stating something confidently, but I know I might not be 100% right. Hey, on listeners, Katie here from Jane. I wanted to take a few seconds to say you're doing incredible work. Whether you're a receptionist, office manager, practitioner, or all of the above, we see your commitment to your clients. Jane was built to help you transform that commitment into a thriving business, all while making your day-to-day easier. You can head to jane.app forward slash mental health to read more and see if we can be a good fit for your practice. It's so challenging though, right? Because again, we're trying to raise you know, the, the, the scientific literacy, right, of, of the population, right, who is looking to the experts to, you know, give clear, solid answers, right, and who get very, very frustrated when those answers need to be adjusted. Yeah. Right? Let me ask you something. And, Sorry, I interrupt you. Yeah. Um, if you were redesigning the public science curriculum, is there one takeaway you would want every graduate to have? One simple message, one simple lesson. Science is self-reflective. Hmm. So, you know, it's it's always evolving, right? And the answers that we have are the best answers we have right now. They are not, you know, rock-solid truths. You know, it's exactly as you were describing don't expect science, you know, the, 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 you know, science changing its answers is a feature, not a bug. Yeah. I think that's what it would boil down to. Yeah. I'd agree with that. My, my friend, uh, Nick Barrowman, who's a statistician at uh, Children's Hospital, Ontario, we had this conversation many years ago and his answer has resonated with me ever since. He had a very simple answer. He says he wants every graduate to simply understand why we need a control group. i've thought about that for years yeah is that surely people get that innately but they don't they don't they don't they do not they do not you know it's hey i i i took ivermectin and i got better right so it works (laughs) (laughs) and again paradynamically you could argue that your pre-ivermectin self was the control group <laughs> it's an A B A B design. It's just the curse you know, of being yeah. good at language. <laughs> you can argue yourself into anything. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know. Yeah, that's to a certain degree. That's true, right? You know, there's there's always, and, and this is the frustration I think of trying to engage with people is that eventually, you, you know, you're engaging with someone. You start off engaging with someone 
you know, in the hopes that it'll, you know, lead somewhere. And the next thing you know, it's a, it's a sea lion. I, mean, I don't know if people know what a sea lion yeah. is on, online. That is someone who just keeps asking questions without ever intending to listen to an answer. <laughs> you know, it's just, let's see how long we can drag this <laughs> up. Right? You know, and it, it, it's, it's an infuriating form of, you know, yes. minor trolling. Right, but <laughs> I pictured minor trolling a bunch of guys <laughs> with hard hats and pickaxes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, yes, yeah, yes. I, you and your puns. <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, there are tricks of the trade you can use when engaging with people. You can make sure you know their name, make sure you address them mm -hmm. politely, and once you, it's kind of like the same techniques that hostage negotiators work. Yeah. You you humanize the other side, humanize yourself. Therefore, you mm -hmm. lower the probability of a bad encounter. You don't eliminate it. Yeah. You just lower the probability. But those yes. are tricks. Those are tricks. Yeah. What I'd rather have is a, a meaningful connection with the world. Yeah. And and again, the humility part of that must also include me taking a step forward with um, uh, the intention of also compromising my belief system. I cannot be completely certain in my belief system. Maybe, maybe COVID is a hoax. Maybe it is. <laughs> I got to be open to that possibility. I'm pretty sure it isn't, but I'm not 100% right. sure. And I, and I have to maintain that degree of flexibility in order to, you know, to understand other people's sensibilities. That, that perspective, of course, allows you to do something which I think is, is, is important, right? Which is to say, so, okay, so if COVID is a hoax, how do we explain this? Yeah. Right. And you can, you know, you can pose a question, right. You know, like, you know, you know, all they want is to control us with lockdowns. Okay. So if that's what they're trying to do is to control us, why, <laughs> what's the payoff, right. Of, you know, of, of, you know, how, and how does lockdowns lead to that payoff? Well, Jonathan, it's to prepare the world for the great reset. Don't you know? Ah, right, right, right. Yeah, and I can kind of see that because you know what? We kind of need one. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, yeah. um, that's a good strategy, by the way, is is exploring mm -hmm. the, the, the logical conclusions of these assumptions. But when you do so, it always unerringly leads to one grand conclusion that the world is in on the conspiracy. This is one of the things I think is so fascinating, right? That you know, when you come up against these conspiracy theories, it's like, how have they been so good at keeping the secret? Right. You know, how, how is it that, you know, you know, a, a, you know, a COVID hoax cooked up in say America managed to get every single country on the planet behind it. Yeah. Right. Just to make, you know, Donald Trump look bad or whatever <laughs> the explanation is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in, you know, you're the psychologist. There are some personalities who will fully accept quite easily that the world is yes. in on the conspiracy. And again, yes. it, according to my philosophy, I must retain one percent of my cognition able to accept that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You 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 heard it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Ray maintains a minimum level of one percent paranoia at all, at all times. Time. <laughs> I, I think my own level is actually significantly higher. Than I can that. neither confirm nor deny that hallucinogens were used in my past. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you take Did you take one of those world trotting, you know, global tours when you were young? Oh, many. Yeah, many. many. <laughs> yes, both um, both physical and pharmacological. Okay. Yeah. Is that out loud? No, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's it's it's, it's entered the mainstream of psychology. Don't worry about it. You know, it's now recognized as a as a, as a therapeutic strategy. Hundred percent. No, I think it's it's important. Well, you we bring up a good point inadvertently, and that is much of what we argue against or deal with in the world of public communication of, of problematic things is a secluded mindset, a non-worldly mindset, where yeah. people look around their small neighborhood. And, and assume the world shares these limited values. Right, right. Uh, um, and how do you combat that? You mm -hmm. can't really, um, unless you take that person by the hand and give them a tour of the world, which you can't do. But the best you can do, I think, is invest in the tools and resources and interventions for society as a whole to expose more people to global thinking. And having said that, I know there's someone listening to say, he's a globalist. I knew it. He's part of the conspiracy. <laughs> well, and I, and I was thinking, you know, like, you know, that's where the idea comes from, of course, that, you know, universities are inculcating leftist values, right? When really what they're doing is they're inculcating a, a broader understanding. And once you understand you know, then you're more open and you're going to judge less. Yes. So, you know, you, you go to a university and you're interacting with international students, you're interacting with all kinds of different perspectives. And that, you know, that small town you came from that wants to find your entire world, right? Suddenly, you know, you've got a different perspective right. and you go back and you talk to your grandparents and your un your drunk uncle at the holiday and they're <laughs> going, you know, who is this idiot kid? You know, <laughs> you know why doesn't he just listen to what I'm saying? Some people go back to that small town and realize, you know what, this small town was right all along. Mm -hmm. I've seen the evils mm -hmm. of the world and I'm going to support and um, extrapolate and cultivate these values in the small town. And that's okay yes. too. Yes. At least they got yes. to that conclusion honestly. Absolutely, absolutely. What's that? that the, the the Amish uh, uh, ritual, right? Uh, uh, begins with an R. I can't, I'm not going. All I know is the reality show that came out of it. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure my understanding is equally in depth. Right? But that idea of you know, shed the values for for a period of time, go out, explore the world, and you know, mm -hmm. you just see what you prefer. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, this idea that universities are educating left-wing values. I don't know. Maybe they are. I don't know. Don't really care. Um, I think what we're more concerned about is this um, distillation and simplification of what values are, either left or right. It ain't that simple as you know. And so I would like it if we could do away with this linear polarized, linear idea of left versus right. It's literally unidimensional. Exactly. Right. It's I've been what accused of being both a fascist and a communist in the same conversation. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, and and of course, like that's just an ordinary day on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's in my own house. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you do have a toddler, I believe. Right? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, precocious. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, who's the real fascist? <laughs> I want to know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I promise him uh, more uh, banana. I didn't have any. He accused me of fomenting the big lie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can well imagine that. Yeah. But, but to bring it, yeah, bring it back to again go off on the jazz tangent and bring it back to the core narrative again. Yes, nice, nice. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, music, we're going music, right? to have to fix how we talk about things in general. Mm-hmm. That includes political affiliation. That includes ideological mm-hmm. um, uh, bent, because people aren't that simple. I mean, a, a, a standard go-to used to be, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative but a social liberal. Right. What does that even mean anymore? So it, we need to make it more complex now. And, yeah. and sadly, you know, the political parties, I think, are invested in making this thing as problematic and difficult as possible. Well, and, and as simple, right? Because their challenge, of course, this is the challenge of a democracy, right? You know, you have to come up with a simple message, right? That's going to appeal to as many voters as possible, Right. And I got bad news for you, Ray. The average IQ is 100. (laughs) (laughs) By definition. By definition. As a statistician, (laughs) let me point out, (laughs) we normalize the curve so that it is 100. Exactly. The Flynn effect does suggest (laughs) that IQs are increasing. (laughs) Mr. Psychologist. Absolutely. And we do have have to have separate Canadian norms. I don't want to go into why, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, you know, and it, 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 so we're trying to, you know, sell very complex ideas, right? And by definition, we have to pitch them in a way that they're going to appeal, right? How do how, you know, we want people to understand complexity, and and we'll be able to reach some, and then others are going to be going, yeah, you know. You use a good you know, phrase there. We have to pitch it in, in such a way that have to appeal, dot, dot, dot. And here's what mm-hmm. I struggle with, again, as a science communicator and what I teach to my grad students, is is that really our job? Is our job to change behavior, to sell an idea, to appeal to people, or is our job to present the facts and have faith in the autonomy and sovereignty of the individual intellect to make their own decisions from these facts if they've been presented ideologically free. I, I will say just one thing in response to that, you idealist you. <laughs> the mandates were lifted, the masks went away, right? So it's as simple as that, right? As soon as the mask mandate gets lifted, people stop wearing masks and conclude yeah. the pandemic is over. Right. So, you know, unfortunately. Okay. But again, what is my job here? Is my job to convince people to wear masks or is my job to explain the science of masks and let people make their decision, even if it's the wrong decision? But what if our job is to save lives? Oh, oh, well, okay. Toss a bit of a wrench into your little philosophy. Okay. We push back. We push back. A hundred percent of us. Are going to die, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I've heard that argument. Right. I've heard that argument, right? You know, why should we be wearing a mask to protect the vulnerable? Right. Everyone has to die. Why are you wearing a mask? Why don't you? I literally this morning, I think somebody right. said on my Twitter feed, "Why? Why are you struggling so hard against your own mortality?" So I would, I would <laughs> massage your statement and say, "Our goal is not to save lives. Our goal is to extend the quantity and quality of life." in equal, equal measures. So, right. So by wearing masks, you extend the quantity and because it's a temporary measure, the quality is not affected. 
Mm-hmm. Not significantly. And of course, let's not let's not forget long term disability and impairments yeah. associated with with COVID. Exactly. Yes. Right? So all it takes is a little nuance to thresh out these simplistic sta- statements. The devil's in the details, as always. Yes. Right? Yes. So yes, I, I yes. often think about our anti-smoking campaign from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, it's mm-hmm. been variably successful, and sometimes it's failed. And the ways in which it's failed, uh, for example, is they're focused so much on illiterate population that those of, of lesser in education got left in the mud. And as a result, we have this bifurcated smoking rates where if you're educated, you have a very low smoking rate, if you're educated, very high smoking rate. That's a direct mm-hmm. result of our messaging campaign, I believe. But mm-hmm. the smoking, anti-smoking campaign also involved a lot of deliberate attempts to change behavior. So on the box, you got a picture of a disease lungs. And if you smoke, right. you're going to die. Right. <laughs> so we do right. everything short of making it illegal to convince you yeah. not to smoke. And right. at some point, you ask yourself, is it it's really that bad? Why don't we simply make it illegal? Because it's against the value. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a monetary. Well, there's money involved. Money involved yeah. <laughs> For the audio listeners, Jonathan was like. <laughs> I was rubbing my finger and thumb yeah. together in, in the universally recognized symbol for cash. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that is probably the reason. But if we take that out yes. of the picture, the reason I would argue is something to do with the values. Uh, making something illegal is a hard line we don't want to cross mm-hmm. for some reason. But we did make illegal. Smoking in public. Yes. We did make illegal smoking on public transportation. That's right. So there's, right? there's and those things are actually enormously effective yes. in reducing the rates of smoking. We made it less convenient to smoke, yeah. right? We didn't make it illegal. You're still allowed to smoke, but you're going to have to go downstairs and be 10 feet away from the door when you do it. Right. So the, right? The, you're going to have to put on your parka, right? The policy decisions are based mm-hmm. largely on nudge economics. We nudge people towards a certain outcome. That's one thing. That's that's absent the communication. Those are policy mm-hmm. levels. The communication angle was bludgeoning people with, you're going to die if you do this. Why, why are you so stupid? It didn't work. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I agree. I, I think that, you know, the, yeah. I think a large part because it's disrespectful and insulting. Because pe- there's actually, there's actually, I've been, I, I believe, um, I read somewhere, I, you know, so, you know, you know, I, uh, don't quote me on this. He said on a public podcast, <laughs> the political science. Um, but I believe that the more frightening the image, the less effective it was. You build in, you actually create reactants. They're trying to get me to stop this. Exactly. Therefore, I'm going to do it more. Who who smokes? Rebellious teenagers. Exactly. Right. Whereas I think you know? if a more nuanced messaging, not for everybody, but for a large proportion, was uh, this is what we know about smoking. It had these effects. Yes. If you still want to do it, okay. You're an adult. You yep. do what you got to do. I'm just saying. Yes. Yeah. I think that's far more effective. And so with the COVID thing, that's the strategy I think possibly would have been more effective is like, mm-hmm. this is how mass work. Vaccines work this way. You understand you've got bodily autonomy and these policy levers around vaccination, masking and certain, that's a different story entirely. But in terms of mm-hmm. your choices, I have faith in you, Mr. Smart Guy, because I love you and respect you. Wink, wink. <laughs> but you're going to make the right decision because I've given you the right information. And I think in this era of distrust and simultaneous access to boatloads of information, that is the only way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish I could see that, you know, working, right? <laughs> when as soon as you have 
you know, an opinion, you know, based on fact, right? As soon as you present facts, right, you're, you're going to be able to say, well, here's this study yes. and here's this expert and here's, you know, this group, right? And you're always going to be able to point to these other that's things. That's a good point. And that's why it has to happen in partnership with these other endeavors to increase scientific literacy. We have Exactly. Because because we're also in this situation where like, you know, if if our goal was we want to get people, you know, to accept masking in public places over the course of the next 10 years. Right. Your approach would be fantastic. Right. But, you know, we needed people to kind of get it now so fast, so rapidly. Only mandates do that quite quickly. Only mandates can do that. Right. Only mandates can do that. I, I, but I mean, to be fair, I think that, you know, we drop the ball on really communicating effectively why. And another thing that occurred to me as well during all of this, right, is, you, you know, I, I don't how How old are you, Ray? I mean, I'm, I'm 58. 22, 23. I, I kind of, that's what I was going to get. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be 55 this summer. 55. Oh. Okay. So you and I grew up, you know, and by the way, I just want to say Ray looks like easily 20 years younger than that so he's not kidding but um it, and you've got a toddler at home i mean that that's a, it, well, we will we'll, that's a whole different conversation so we grew up in an era when you know MASH would come on at nine o'clock on a Thursday night and Friday, everyone would be talking about MASH the following day. We had a shared mm. um, cultural experience. That's yep. right. You know, you'd, you'd watch the news and you'd have your choice between CBC, CBS, ABC and NBC. Right. Yeah. And that was it. You know, and they all, you know, followed the fairness doctrine and, you know, you, you're all getting the same fundamental pieces of information. Right. With relatively little difference between the networks and you know if the government had an urgent message they would plunk it onto the tv buy time across all the networks available boom everyone's going to get the message yeah where are these messages now yeah. like i keep wondering you know where are the psas the public service good question i mean we like to think that facebook gets to more people but facebook is so less than the majority of people twitter is less than the majority tv is mm-hmm. even a TV actually has a bigger footprint than either one of those two, I think, still. Um, yeah. And ads on the side of the bus doesn't affect people like me who never leave the house. Yeah. We need, yeah. need skywriting. And and I'm waiting <laughs> for the, the psychic <laughs> broadcast network to kick in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Elon's yeah, working yeah. on that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but it's a good question. Oh. Is how do we but even let's not idealize the past in terms of communication. Even in the 70s when we're all watching MASH. A lot of people didn't have TVs. We missed a lot of people. We don't talk and about Some it. people had to watch it in black and white. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. But we, there, there were newspapers, right? There, oh, you know, those things, right. Right, right, right. You know, so there, you know, there are only so many ways to get information. And yes, the television is very important today, but it's streaming, it's true. right? It's, you know, so many people are streaming or, or you know, the, the you know, the, the government can't buy PSAs across 90 cable channels. Well, the answer is, of course, we need a multi-platform approach. Mm-hmm. Messaging. Uh, someone suggested that um, early in the vaccine rollout campaign, we hire experts 
in mass marketing, meaning advertising firms to help mm-hmm. that process. And if I don't, I don't know any, I assume they will tell us that they're expert now in advertising on TV and radio and billboards and on TikTok and on Twitter and Facebook and everything else. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I think the truth is we need experts in this who know how to yes. do this. Yes. Like I, I supposedly I'm an expert now in verbalizing some of this stuff. Yeah. Supposedly you're yeah. an expert in, um, I was trying to be. I was trying to be facetious here. <laughs> Something, you know, <laughs> something related to facial hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but none of us can do those things and understand all these platforms at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. governments, for the most part, have been doing this in-house, mm-hmm. and that's a mm-hmm. problem. So, I mean, Teresa Tam uh, goes on TV and says some things, and I think she's a great scientist, but not a great communicator, if I may be so bold to saying so. And, and I think yeah. uh, maybe we should be, maybe government should be sharing the responsibility. Like some people devise policy, others formulate the details, and others are in the public eye communicating it. Yes. And someone yes. else takes the blowback. The politicians should take the blowback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so what you're saying is we need a, a photogenic, uh, skilled uh, uh, epidemiologist, you know, to, to be the face of the campaign and let the trolls go after somebody else. I, I think it's a great idea, right? I, you know anyone who might be uh, up to that? <laughs> hey, Fisman's free. So <laughs> <laughs> I believe he is. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to think of which countries have done it well. And uh, I mean, in, in terms of uh, COVID response, in my opinion, the countries mm-hmm. have done COVID well pre-vaccination had three things in common. They got really good at finding cases through testing. They got really good at monitoring their borders for importation and infection, and they acted hard and they acted early. But I would add a fourth thing, and that is they separated out the public health communication from the political communication and led, mm-hmm. let the public health communicator lead the public health communication. Yes. You know, I'm thinking of uh, Germany, um, where uh, Christian Drosten was, you know, front and center as the scientist in charge. He took a lot of heat for it, but his government, you know, protected him. Um, And that's that's kind of a way it has to go. Uh, Yeah. There's there's a paper I always cite. I got to make sure I mention this before we run out of time. From 2007, I think it was. Um, This was published by the WHO as lessons learned from the SARS epidemic of 2003, I think. Right. And they had three lessons. Number one was uh, animal husbandry is bad for human health. That's my vegan propaganda. (laughs) That's That's right. I'm wearing another qualification. (laughs) Look at my t-shirt. Get get in, loser. We're going vegan. That's my my (laughs) t-shirt. And also an expert, by the way, in the use of the Instapot to make <laughs> the most beautiful, beautiful meals imaginable. I drool every time I look at them. Yeah. Uh, you drool when you look at the meals, not at me. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Let's, let's look at them, the meal. <laughs> the, the second <laughs> lesson that this paper listed was the mm-hmm. old technologies are the best technologies. So hiding in your house works. Wearing a mask works. Sure, yes. the apps and stuff 
that's a great thing to look into. The vaccines, <laughs> yeah, so that's great. But yeah, keeping away yeah. from people always works. But the yeah. one I'm still waiting for my 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 Canada COVID alert app <laughs> to give me its very first ever, you know, positive hit yes. that I've 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 been exposed. So far I've never once met anyone with COVID. Apparently. You know, as an aside, one of my former grad students lives above a bar in Montreal. Yeah. And his alert app was going off all the time because he was always really? within a couple of meters of a bunch of infected people, really? even though he had no exposure to them. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, that's cool. I'm glad it actually worked for something yeah. because that's literally the first story I've ever heard of anybody getting an alert. <laughs> but the third lesson was that transparency and communication is paramount. And by the way, we've done none of those three things well this <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. And, and, yeah. What, and yeah. what they were talking about in that paper was transparency from uh, public health officials to other public health officials. Mm. But we have to extrapolate okay. that as transparency laterally, but also yeah. vertically. Absolutely. And it got me thinking yeah. of what are the priorities, what are the, um, the intentions of public health communication? And to my mind, number one is to alert people to the, that an emergency exists. Number two, mm-hmm. the nature of the emergency. Number three, what are we doing about it? Number four, what should you do about it? And maybe number five, to assuage panic to some extent. Right. But that's, that's kind of classical. That makes sense. We never yeah. thought about, we also have to combat the nonsense some people are saying. We also have to educate you on how to understand some of the nonsense we're saying. We also have to combat um, these platforms of disinformation and wage an information war against a foreign adversary. So the the responsibilities blossomed and became untenable. And in Canada, at least, this is all done by volunteers. Like, I don't, I'm not paid for this. You know, um, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, how you find the time to do what you do is amazing. It has impacted my relationship. My spouse is not happy when I'm on TV all the time, right? So yeah, these are yeah. these are sacrifices we make. Uh, yeah. um, but yeah. what we need to do is fund and employ a cadre of of full time communicators to to address these issues. Uh, government is really paying catch up all the time. I don't blame them. They haven't got the resources. So citizen scientists have stepped up to fill that gap and have suffered yeah. greatly for it. Yeah. So prepare for the next one. We need, I don't want to use military terminology, but an army, a reserve yeah. force of individuals who will be compensated and supported when the time comes for that communication task to once again. Knowledge transfer um, specialists. Look at you. Yes. <laughs> let's call them kts because everyone loves acronyms so <laughs> that does sound very cool i mean that's that's right up there with you know jtf you know uh, yeah absolutely absolutely you know it's like the navy seals you know it's, 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 that sounds and i think cool. it probably will end up being the most important response and that's that's my gut feeling as well that you know uh the pandemic is going to be you know won or lost on how effectively we communicate, right? And I've seen some of these these news conferences. I've seen the best, right? And I've seen the worst. I, I look at some of the you know the people who are up there communicating. Like, oh my god, you know, h- how did you become the face of an emergency? Like this? <laughs> yeah, could I, you possibly be more boring. I feel bad know? for people like that. I mean, obviously they're yeah. other things. 
They're scientists that yeah. have been thrust in front of a camera where they have no training. You don't no train skill. them at all. People Absolutely. often ask me what training I've received, none, and whether my university mm-hmm. gives me additional training. Or they've offered, but I, I've seen their media mm-hmm. training, not to disrespect them, but it's <laughs> mostly around message management and yes. not embarrassing the university. Yeah. And how to say yeah. as little yeah. as possible, which to me is not the yeah. goal. The goal no. is to say as much as possible in a way that people can understand and not be put off by. Yes. Exactly. In an engaging way, you know, and and that is something nobody teaches except maybe an acting school. Yeah, I know. But, you know, even like, you know, managing my my own Twitter feed, (laughs) when I I started Twitter, right, the the one goal I set for myself was never be boring, right? Don't let it be boring, right? Because, I mean, no one's you have ever failed so miserably. I know. I, I don't know how I missed the mark so much. <laughs> <laughs> but what it boiled down to, though, is I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be myself. Yeah. Right. I'm going to, oh. what I find entertaining, I'm going to forward what my thoughts are. You know, I'm going to be there and I'm going to drip in. Some, you make a very you know, good point you know, there. And uh, yeah. sorry to interrupt you again. Um, no, no. Uh, no that no, is, I, I think, one of the keys to all of this is authenticity. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is people don't yeah. respond to words; they respond to character and personality. And, oh, that is so true. And, and not to that constructed so character and personality, but genuine character and personality. I hate to give yes. any credence to um, Foucault, whose writings I detest, mm-hmm. but um, I think he was right in that the world is not made of atoms; the world is made of narratives, yes. stories. And if you can put yeah. forth a story and communicate in the style of story, then you also put front and center your personality and character, and also communicate in a way that people can absorb. Because and, oh, sorry, yeah. I'm trying to get because. Think back during the st- early Stone Age. You remember, you were around back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what do we talk about around the campfire? When we, talk, when we uh, communicated how to hunt an antelope or whatever it is, we didn't say, well, well, child, you, you tie the arrowhead onto the thing here, and here's this diagram I drew. And say, no, you tell a story. Yeah. You know? That's right. That's and right. that is yeah. still how we are hardwired to learn and to absorb information today, not via graphs and charts and tables, but via stories. Stories told by a good storyteller who is engaging and personable. And that is how all this must be constructed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why every good science writer for a newspaper starts off every single science article with an anecdote. A hook, yes. Right? You know, here's this person, you know, so-and-so of such-and-such an age, you know, discovered the tumor, blah, 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 right? And then goes into the science behind smoking. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, oh, I can relate to that guy. And, you know, yeah, that, that, it makes all the difference in the world. Right. Yeah. We don't yeah. teach that at all. I mean, we, we, again, we teach in writing class, acting mm-hmm. class, in the mm-hmm. arts, not in the sciences. Yeah. And again, I guess this is the plea for interdisciplinarity. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah. Yeah. That liberal arts, right. You know, we have, we tend to go science or we go arts and we need both. Right. We need to have that. All right. I need to let you go. Right. Because, you know, you, you I've already taken enough of your spouse's time. <laughs> yeah. She, she's <laughs> printing out a document in my printer right now. So you probably hear that. That's her way of saying, <laughs> get out of there. You're in the office. You know, <laughs> Ray, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been such a great pleasure, you know, to actually sit down and communicate with you, which, by the way, felt like I've been doing, you know, all along anyhow, mm-hmm. just by on, on text, yes. right? You know, and I, I just want to, uh, you know, thank you again for taking the time. The best part is we're both being filmed from the nipples up 
And who knows what's beneath that? <laughs> Absolutely. That is a secret which will remain between us. <laughs> All right. Take care, Ray. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey there. This is Katie from Jane. Thanks for letting our team be a part of your listening experience over these past few months. We're proud to be sponsors of the Ontario Psychological Association and the OnSight podcast. If you're new to Jane, let me tell you a bit about us. Jane is complete practice management software that can help you navigate your day-to-day with ease and flexibility. This means simple scheduling, streamlined billing, intuitive charting, and so much more. We'd love to meet you and hear your story. Our team is only a phone call or email away, and you can find us over at jane.app forward slash mental health. We look forward to hearing from you. You have been listening to On Psych, presented by the Ontario Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.